Welcome to the Purse Podcast. My name is Jana Listova, and we are changing the conversation for women about money and investing. I'm super excited about my guest today, Julie A. Nelson. Julie is Professor Emeritus of Economics at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. She was a founding member of the International Association for Feminist Economics and co-edited with Marianne Ferber, the book Beyond Economic Man, Feminist Theory and Economics, sometimes called The Manifesto of Our Field, published in 1993. Her most recent books are Economics for Humans and Gender and Risk-Taking, Economics, Evidence and Why the Answer Matters. Her shorter pieces have been published in journals ranging from Econometrica and the Journal of Political Economy to Hypatia, Journal of Feminist Philosophy and Ecological Economics. She is editor of the Business Ethics and Economics section of the Journal of Business Ethics and was the 2019 president of the Association for social economics. Now, in this podcast interview, Julie talks about women and risk-taking. She also talks about gender bias in economics and the impact on women and why economics is about humans and the need to be open to new and diverse views and perspectives, the need for change in economics. And to finish up, we talk about why economists need to be more radical. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Please note that this podcast interview is for informational purposes only. We do not provide investment advice. Julie, welcome to the show. I'm thrilled to have you on today. I'm very pleased to be here. So before we get into it, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey to where you are today and what motivated you to become an economist? I became an economist somewhat by accident. I grew up in a service-oriented family. I was expected to do something to serve the world. My father wanted me to be a medical missionary. I didn't much enjoy science classes, and I got signed up for an economics class sort of over my own preferences. My freshman advisor kind of frog-marched me over to the economics table and got me into an economics class as a social science elective. But once I started studying economics, I realized that it did have some things to do with the world other than business. I confused it with business studies. And I was concerned about poverty, and I thought maybe if I went into economics rather than trying to serve people as a doctor, I could find out why hospitals are so underfunded you know, in areas where people really need them or why people don't have enough money to pay for health care. And the college I went to at the undergraduate level, it pretty much encouraged that. But I found out the rest of the profession was not so great on that as I continued to learn. But that's how I initially got in. So then I did do a, a graduate, a PhD degree, uh, went on for a PhD degree in economics, taught and did research at various places and retired a few years ago as a professor emeritus. I remember listening to a webinar that you gave, I think, early in the year. And you talked about a class that you took on women and the economy in 1972, which sort of woke you up to the fact of women's disadvantage. I think that's the phrase that you use. Can you share what caught your attention at the time? What were these facts of women's disadvantage? 
Yes, my school had a male professor teaching a women in the economy course, which was pretty brave actually at the time in 1972. This wasn't a common thing. And in that, what I learned just from the basic data shocked me. Women at the time were making about 60 cents on average for full-time work to men's dollar. It's now gone up to more like 80 cents, but at the time it had been, been 60 cents for quite a long time. And occupational segregation was severe. In 1972, you rarely saw a female physician or business leader or in politics. You still rarely see them now, but it's not as rare as it was back then. I was asked by someone, I remember, what I was majoring in in college. And when I said economics, they looked very confused and said, uh, home economics? And I said, no. <laughs> and then they said, oh, business. You know, it, it was more acceptable for women to be bookkeepers. or More acceptable to be on the admin side of things rather than... Right. And women were a small minority of economists at that time. So that kind of occupational segregation was just rife. Well, what I find interesting is that it, it shocked you and convinced you that you needed to be doing work in this field. And it, it doesn't affect everyone in the same way. So obviously something moved you quite a lot. I would say that after graduation, I can't actually remember who it was, but I went to a talk by a feminist social scientist. I can't remember, sociologist, political scientist, something, who talked about a feminist view. And I had never really thought about, you know, I, I knew about the statistics, I knew about the labor market, but I hadn't really thought about how masculine biased ideas had actually shaped a profession itself. And when I heard that, I thought, wow, economics needs that. I don't see anybody doing it. <laughs> and that's uh, what got me into graduate school. I think I've already said this on the podcast, but when I studied economics, we didn't have a single female economist, and we certainly didn't talk about women in economics, and there was no gender view, feminist view. And that was when I was studying my undergraduate degree, so about 20 years ago. Yeah. Sad to see that things haven't moved on very much. How much of women's disadvantage do you think can be attributed to women being in large part invisible in economic history? In economic history, I mean, that's not particularly my field, although I've looked into it in terms of how it's put together the kinds of economics we have today. And for a while there in the 70s and 80s, a respectable economics article could have a title and talk about discrimination. Now they just talk about differences and they go into, well, maybe women, they're back into these things about maybe women don't want these jobs, maybe they don't have the abilities, whatever. The word discrimination has just turned into wage gap with a variety of explanations possible. Mm -hmm. And the study of what goes on within households in terms of economic relationships has been widely neglected. It was assumed through most of economics that the household is just a unit and the unit's decision maker is the household head, meaning a husband. So single parent families and the dynamics of what's going on, who's actually making choices, who actually has control in some countries, who actually, who actually is getting enough to eat and who isn't within a family, mm -hmm. just got covered over by this neglect, you know, just the thought that there's nothing interesting going on in there. And of course, all the, the services being provided by unpaid women, caring for children, caring for the sick and elderly, doing home production of all sorts. And we are feeling and seeing the impact of that to this very day, aren't we? Yes, yeah. I have seen little bits of progress. 
I think when the Biden administration put forward its infrastructure plan and included child care, that was a moment to get up and clap. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, bridges a are a way that people need to use to get to work and roads are a way that is something that people need to use to get to work. And mm-hmm. childcare is something that people need to use to get to work. And it's been up until now usually regarded as you know a woman's personal problem, not as a societal issue. Yeah. I was really interested to find out about your research on the topic of women and risk-taking. I've interviewed Barbara Stewart and Michelle Walker, both of whom are are big fans of yours, Julie, (laughs) and you inspired their work. And I think they definitely referenced your research in the work that they've done. Can you tell us about your research paper, the, the research that you did, which basically proved that women are not risk averse? Yeah, I have a series of articles and a book on this, on gender and risk aversion. I got into doing this research because there was a whole raft of articles coming out in respectable economics journals saying women are more risk averse than men in the titles and making really essentialist claims that there's something about women that just systematically makes women more risk averse. And often it is interpreted categorically. Men have one risk style, women have another risk style. So I was wondering where that came from. I am a feminist, and in the you know being mostly brought up in the second wave of feminists, I'm very alert to issues of stereotyping, and this seemed like a stereotype to me. But I'm also an empirical social scientist, so I really like to see what the data say. And I did actually two what are called meta-analyses, that is, analyses of groups of other studies, and discovered that big title headline conclusion is really false and misleading. One may be able to sometimes find a statistically significant difference between male and female averages on various scores of risk-taking. The studies often use lottery experimental games, sometimes surveys, sometimes actual investments. But that's very different from a categorical difference between women and men. Uh, Several factors go into that. The biggest one is the statistical significance is not the same thing as substantive significance. The statistical significance basically depends on sample size. The more information you have, the more likely you are to detect even a small on average difference. And it turns out that some small studies and a number of large studies did find a statistically significant difference, but it's tiny. If you were presented with two people and you knew nothing about them and you had to decide which one was more risk averse, you'd have a 50-50 chance of being right, (laughs) 50% chance choosing one or wrong. If Mm -hmm. one is a woman and one is a man, and you know from this literature, quote, women are more risk averse than men, and you're asked to point to the one who takes more risks, you have a 54% chance of being right. Sex just adds very little to our knowledge about risk-taking. You would know much more if you know anything about the history of this person or their hobbies, or you took 20 seconds to ask them a question. You know, you could probably go from 50% up to 80% very easily, and sex really doesn't tell you anything. Mm. And then beyond that, I found considerable evidence of confirmation, what's called confirmation and publication bias which was that while some studies find statistically significant differences in favor of men taking more risk, there are also studies out there that found statistically significant differences in the other direction, and many, many studies that couldn't find differences at all. 
So that means that what has gotten into publication is just the tip of an iceberg, <laughs> and the iceberg goes in a quite different direction underneath the water. So all of that was pretty technical, but basically what I concluded after all of this, seeing what got published and what didn't, and the rest of this, is that economists are much more invested in this stereotype than they are in doing credible, statistically reliable, well-interpreted economic research. That's the big conclusion. God. <laughs> when I came across your research and your book because of the interviews that I've done on this podcast, I was so shocked, Julie. I mean, gender bias in economics research, if economists get away with it, you know, it's no wonder it, this is so difficult to shake in the business world and, and the wider world. Yeah, economists like to believe they're objective. And one of the big insights of feminist critiques of science and social sciences is that it really always takes a group of people with different kinds of views mm -hmm. to come up with relatively unbiased research. Any individual or any small homogeneous group left to do research on its own is likely just to confirm its own biases. Mm. And that's what we've I certainly found in economics. Some people think the feminist view of economics is, you know, oh, we should study the household more. We should, you know, use more notions of cooperation and verbal methods. But we really have nothing to say about hard economics, about, you know, business and statistics. But actually, economists are using their statistics wrong. And they've gotten a very biased view of what the essence of a business is that really has nothing to do with research in the real world. So yeah, there's a lot of problems in economics. I mean, it suggests what we tend to see all over, which is an underestimation or a sort of dismissiveness towards anything that <laughs> relates to gender or women. Exactly. Which comes back to bias. This is what gender bias is all about. And this has lasting consequences on women, girls. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I want to just take a step back. And for listeners who may not be well-read in economics, haven't studied economics, but really would like to try and understand in very simple terms what it's about and what it hopes to achieve as defined by Adam Smith and the concept of the economic man, what would you say? How would you describe it? Adam Smith did not write about women, but he actually had a much more balanced philosophical view <laughs> than contemporary economics. He did write about the invisible hand and the coordination you could get by markets. He also wrote about the problems of collusion in business and wrote a whole book about moral sentiments. Economists these days would not write about moral sentiments and don't pay much attention to cooperation among businesses. Adam Smith he was quite taken with the new developments in mechanics and engineering of his time. So he used a lot of these industrial mechanical metaphors and talked about the economy as this self-functioning system or machine with gears that worked. And that caught on. And unfortunately, that's part of what's influenced economics today is this idea that the economy is not social. It's got these physics-like forces that act outside of society. So Adam Smith's idea about the machine got added to by this idea that of economic man, which actually came surprisingly from John Stuart Mill, who was also a much broader philosopher in many ways. But the idea that people in their economic life are only interested in getting more personal wealth. And then that got formalized by the people that put together what's called the neoclassical school, who realized you can talk about maximization of wealth in terms of calculus. 
calculus does these nice mathematical formulations of maximization and minimization. So now we had a truly macho view of economics. It's not about people, it's about machines. It's not about social interactions, it's about laws of supply and laws of demand. And it's not about actually talking to people or getting engaged in the real world and details. It's about drawing theories from mathematics. And mm -hmm. somehow this macho view of what economies are really captured the attention and desire to look masculine and physics-like of economists and gave yeah. us this really warped view. Economics life is part of social life. To do real-world economics, you actually have to find out what's happening in the real world. And economics has gotten less and less in touch with all of that. Mm. And it was never in touch with women's lives. <laughs> so these things compound each other. So I'm listening to this, Julie. I know you feel the same, and feminist economists do. It's just so shocking that this has been allowed to go on for so long. People have called out the emperor has no clothes many times, yeah. um, but the emperor is also quite powerful. And it's yeah. often backed by powerful groups that really don't want us to look at poverty or environmental degradation or other things that tend to get neglected in this mechanical view of the world. So there's uh, political aspects to it as well as uh, philosophical. Because it would require them to rethink and yeah. remodel <laughs> and actually say, hey, guys, we're doing this wrong. Yeah. And actually say, you know, ethical concerns about how we treat other people should play a role. This isn't just some abstract science where Mm. We just find the truth and leave it to policymakers to implement. No, mm. we're, what we're supposedly finding is very much biased by this position of being white, middle class or better, privileged, mostly in industrialized countries. That's where the core of economic theory was put together, mm. uh, not in colonial or marginalized or female dominated spaces. It's a convenient truth or convenient mistruth. <laughs> which is taken to be the truth. It's so easy to cut out all the very complex, real, human, messy realities and just focus on... You feel much more powerful when you're doing a math problem and you, you get a definitive answer at the end of the page. <laughs> Dealing with humans is much more complicated. <laughs> much more messy. Rather just leave that at home, close the door sure. and look in the opposite direction. This sort of follows up to my next question. In your view, Julie, how has this foundational economic theory shaped industry, the business world, money markets, politics, and government? I mean, I think a lot about how this has impacted investors, the way that financial industry invests, how they allocate capital, how justified they are in allocating capital, even if it's at the cost of people detrimental to the environment. What are your thoughts? I've been one of the relatively few feminist economists to take more look at business and business operations in markets. Feminist economists realized early on that this model of the unitary household that just serves the interests of the household head needed a lot of unpacking. The model of the firm needs Unpacking for the same reasons, both ethical and both because it's just descriptively wrong. However, economic theories are powerful and firms have come more and more to be life imitating fiction. That is, economists invented this very powerful fiction that firms are by definition and by their essence entities that maximize profits. That came out of this rational economic man Economic agents are only interested in maximizing their own wealth. 
they're self-interested, they're greedy, they're rational, and a view of markets as these impersonal machines. Firms are a unit and they maximize something, they maximize profits. You put that together with the idea that markets are competitive, you know, also a very macho view, and you get this idea that firms are all in this dog-eat-dog world, and if any of them tried to spend a little money on environmental protection or better labor standards, they would be driven out of business by all of their competitors who are more bloodthirsty. So therefore, it is often concluded by people both on the right and the left that it's not the role of business to try to be a, a good citizen in any way. And that comes from that same sort of bias. If you actually look at what businesses do, again, economists model did not come from going out and talking to business leaders about what they were interested in and what they're trying to do. Businesses actually often and more often before the economics view got so popular could be about providing employment, could be about providing services. A lot of entrepreneurs start a business because of some kind of creative impulse. They want to be innovative. They want to see if something works. Mm -hmm. Yes, they want to make money. They certainly want to make enough to you know, support themselves and their family. Maybe even they want more. But there are these other possibilities as well. Mm -hmm. And in fact, most of us rely quite a lot on those innovations in business and on the things that businesses organize and supply. Mm -hmm. And that's true whether you're, you know, you're on the right or the left. But businesses have become more and more financialized, the term often is. Being told that the only important thing about a business is the bottom line on a profit and loss statement, more and more businesses have come to act as if the only thing that matters is the bottom line on a profit and loss statement. Mm -hmm. So there's this whole myth that businesses simply exist for shareholders to make profits. And there are business leaders out there saying, actually, that's not true. Yes, we do have to satisfy our shareholders. And we actually want our grandchildren to have a decent world to live in. Uh, we actually want our workers to not suffer from stress, burnout, and leave. We want to run a business that is more broader set of interests in mind. And then I should say that there's a huge ethical failing with widespread consequences that comes from taking that model a step further. Well, we had said that the business is a unit that maximizes profits, but actually, if you look inside a business, there's a bunch of different people. There are shareholders who have an interest. There's a board of directors. There are employees. There's managers at different levels. There's a CEO. The CEO is supposedly in charge of running this business and by economic theory should be interested in maximum profits for the shareholders. But what if we assume that CEO is also self-interested? What they're really interested in is not what's best for the shareholders, it's what's best for themselves, mm -hmm. which means that they are going to try to get the most out of it themselves. So some economist types dreamed up in the 1970s the idea that you have to incentivize CEOs to do what's best for the shareholders by giving them lots of stock options as bonuses so that their personal well-being will be tied to the stock price. And supposedly that would lead them to work more in the business of the company. What that has done really is more and more sort of legitimized greed by CEOs and caused when we talk about the top 1% of earners, you know, particularly in the United States, being so far off and a tiny fraction of 1% of wealth holders, a lot of that comes from these ridiculous stock options. There are CEOs making $300 million a year while their company starts going downhill. Mm -hmm. You hear people in finance and business talking about short-termism because these CEOs aren't interested in the long-term health of the company. 
They just want the stock to go up so they can collect their money. And then, you know, after they leave the job, they don't really care. So this increasing inequality and this increasing lack of attention to the wide responsibilities of business have come from this economic theory. And what we used to think before that 1970s article, that if you're paid well, it's your responsibility to do a good job. Apparently, that's not supposed to hold true for CEOs or really anyone else. Economists talk a lot about shirking at various levels. I think a lot of people sort of thought they had a responsibility to do a good job for a decent pay. And that is going extinct. There are so many things that I'm thinking about. (laughs) (laughs) You know, people like Simon Sinek, I'm not sure if you're familiar with his work, he's now drawing a lot of attention to how important it is for the CEOs, founders, you know, leaders in businesses to create an environment, a culture of trust. Yeah. And how you go about building loyalty. And it's not just by paying somebody. It's based on lots of other things. The other thing that occurred to me as you were speaking is that there's a lot of research now about the fact that CEOs of very large organizations, no disrespect, but tend to be sociopaths. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and, And so aren't we just hiring the wrong people because we think that this type of individual will perform in a certain way? Are we not misreading that actually it's about values, it's about recruiting individuals or an individual who is collaborative, open, transparent, knows how to think about how to build a culture and an environment where people feel safe to try new things, to experiment, to innovate. And you need to do that within an environment of trust, psychological safety. If the only way we think about the business, the firm, is through the maximization of profit and incentivizing through money only, (laughs) we get to the world that we're in today. So there is definitely a problem here. Right. And we shouldn't be dismissed. People like you and I and Simon Sinek shouldn't be dismissed for being weak because we talk about people, we talk about trust, we talk about relationships and how important it is to build a credible business, which is sustainable. I'm a section editor for the Journal of Business Ethics. And people who talk about ethics or talk about loyalty and trust in business get disrespect from both sides, both from the the right and left. People on the right think, well, you just have to let the market work and all of this incentivizing and profit maximizing is just fine. People from the left often say, ooh, business, you know, how distasteful. You know, they also believe that business is maximizing profits all the time and you need to bring in the state or you need to devolve into small cooperative communities or something else as a solution. But both of those sides are believing the economist myth rather than seeing businesses as social organizations Mm -hmm. where all of our human self that trusts and distrusts, that has various kinds of motivations, spend a good deal of our life. Mm -hmm. So all of this really needs to come in, but we don't get the respect. It sounds weak. It sounds soft. Right. But actually, I take part from the history of the New Deal and its arise out of what was called old institutional economics and philosophical pragmatism. This was in the early decades of the 20th century. There was a big showdown coming between the robber baron capitalists and the workers who saw the communist revolutions going on in Europe. You know, was the same thing going to happen here? 
And actually, a number of people across the board got their heads together and said, we can put some limits on mergers and acquisitions and the rest of this so that the robber baron's empires are not so big and they're not so powerful. And we can put in labor laws protecting workers and social security systems and workers' compensation systems and these kinds of things. And again, they were excoriated by people both on the political left and political right who thought they didn't go far enough for so-called free markets, which have never existed, or some better alternative system, which we've also never really seen in practice. So trying to actually do the better things that work for people doesn't fit into a tidy ideology. Mm-hmm. and doesn't fit into a simple model of the firm and markets that the groups that disrespect pragmatic approaches tend to adopt. Yeah. As we said, it's so much easier to ignore the messy bits. Yeah. <laughs> but of course, we leave out 51%, if not more, of the population. And it's not a surprise that women are speaking up and we speak up differently and we represent a different point of view. I also thought about Sheryl Sandberg. I mean, she used to talk a lot about bringing your whole self to work. Mm-hmm. And she wasn't specifically talking about economics, but here it's it's sort of, it resonates in exactly the same way. Yeah. And the importance of not cutting out or ignoring or diminishing or marginalizing or making invisible aspects of yourself, your life as a woman. Yes, you might be married, you might have small children. Just because you have a job in an organization doesn't mean that you ignore all of that because (laughs) men actually have their wives at home looking after their kids so they can pretend that that bit doesn't exist and again that echoes Adam Smith very much doesn't it you've written about human economics and I absolutely love that term and I do love the book that you've written Julie did you want to talk any more about that sort of combination of your life's work yeah in the book economics for humans I brought together feminist work realizing the real economic value of caring work and my work on the business side, realizing the real concern for human characteristics that needs to happen in business. The neglect of both of those has led to real deficits of economic resources going to care. In the U.S., most times the Bureau of Labor Statistics makes a survey. Childcare workers get less per hour than parking lot attendants. People seem to think it's more worthy to watch parked cars than to spend a lot of time bringing up the next generation. And of course, we're alone in the industrialized world pretty much about not doing better on family leaves, you know, funding family leaves and sick leave and, you know, a lot of other things that you really need to be able to do the care that keeps you know, families and economies running. So the care side has been starved of resources. On the other hand, the side that has resources has been starved of care. The idea that employers could actually care about the well-being of their workers, could actually care about whether their grandchildren are going to have a, a decent environment to live in. So in Economics for Humans, I explain where this really perverse idea of the economy as a machine came from, mm-hmm. shows how it's had harmful impacts in both those areas, and suggest some alternative metaphors. I talk about a beating heart, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which circulates things around, which is what we think (laughs) of the economy doing, producing and circulating, and is also the seat of love and courage, both of which we're going to need if we're going to do better in this life (laughs) and uh, do better as a species. I also talk about husbandry as a masculine way of thinking about care. A lot of people, when they think about care, they think about mothers and babies, and there's not a whole lot of room for men in that picture. 
Mm-hmm. So I went back to this word husbandry, which nowadays mostly refers to like raising animals. But when you raise animals, you actually have to pay attention to their health, right? You have to pay attention to the climate and the environment that they're in. And there is a notion of more masculine associated, and it's simultaneous with economic production, right? Mm -hmm. So it is possible to bring in these notions of carefulness and care into our ideas of economic production. Not that that kind of economic production can't also be husbanded by women, but I just wanted to present something with which people who identify as male might more closely see themselves in. Mm. Tend a company the way you tend a flock of sheep. (laughs) And you use different language and you use metaphors to try and open up the understanding, the perception. Yeah, my first piece, big published piece in economics had a title Gender and Metaphor appeared Mm -hmm. in economics philosophy back in the 1990s. But it was the realization that I had, and it was some other people, we're talking about aspects of this at the time, that economics was really, you know, it's all dolled up in in this mathematics, but it's based on a metaphor of machine, Mm. a metaphor that says everything to do with masculinity is good science. And everything that goes against that, like qualitative analysis, verbal, things having to do with family, sociality, that's all arts and literature, you know, somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Those metaphors of masculinity and machinery are what gave us the economic analysis we have, just mm-hmm. highly partial and highly biased. And so difficult to get rid of. Those metaphors run deep. Those understandings are really quite hard to dislodge. It's very difficult because it connects very deeply to your sense of self, your identity. Mm-hmm. And it must feel quite threatening to individuals who do identify with all of the masculine metaphors and how they see themselves in this world. And to have that challenge potentially challenges their identity. The belief that men are brave and women are timid. Right. <laughs> That's why right. we got this big literature on women are more risk averse than men. Didn't have right. to do with the data. It has to do with, this, we, we got to keep this belief. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but, but actually the women are, you know, everything about being careful, which you actually should be brave and careful at the same time. Mm-hmm. The care got written onto women, the bravery onto men. So what you end up with is reckless men and right. disempowered, careful people. <laughs> right. And again, as if to suggest that being careful or considerate or compassionate or caring is somehow a weakness. Yeah, that's going to keep you from being the hero that goes out there and conquers. Never mind the fact that heroes can actually destroy life. (laughs) Yes, they may. And also destroy the planet. Um, Yes. And, oh, look, we might have a situation like that right right now. Yeah, yeah, Well, actually, that Nicholas Tassim Taleb in, in one of his books talks about the wisdom of grandmothers. Mm-hmm. Economics is all about efficiency, trying to do the most with the least resources. And if you are always thinking that way, then, then spending a lot of resources on a flood wall for a flood that may never occur looks silly. The mm-hmm. flood never comes and you spend all this resources. Boy, that was really inefficient. But what Talib was pointing to here was it's often our metaphors for wisdom about traditionally the wisdom of grandmothers, those that live long enough to remember the last flood, okay, and say, you, you probably want that flood wall, even though it looks superfluous at this point. Yes. Be prepared. Look at the future. See what's going to happen. Mm, it's a long-term view. It's a long-term view. Yeah. Yeah. 
Interestingly, female investors are associated more with taking the long-term view. Men tend to trade much more frequently. And guess who ends up making more money at the end of the day, Julie? <laughs> yeah, there has been one study on that. Actually, I'm not sure whether men making more trades always means that they're willing to take more risks. Or they just have more time because the women are taking care of the kids and getting them to school. <laughs> and they have zero leisure time in comparison. How many moms of young children do you know stay up late at night looking at their stock price, you know, <laughs> trades? <laughs> They don't have the time. They don't have the mental bandwidth because they have to carry the emotional, mental load right. everything. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not necessarily risk preferences going on there or that women bring something different in terms of themselves. But women may still often do bring very different experiences yeah. from yeah. being on a whole different set of societal expectations. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I really like the way you describe economics, that it should be about survival and flourishing versus markets and rational thought. It seems to me that most people on the street, if you ask them what economics is about or, or should be about, or why should anybody pay an economist, I think they'd reply that it should have something to do with their livelihoods should have something to do with employment and what they can pay for with their paycheck. So inflation and you know, whether there are job openings for them, how businesses are functioning, whether businesses are putting out safe projects. Can they make a living? Can they raise their families in this world shaped by you know, these economic forces? And yet, when you talk to economists, that issue of livelihood barely comes up at all. Like I said, I, I studied economics as an undergraduate because I was interested in poverty. And there's a small group of economists that look at that. But it's very much not a mainstream concern. Mm -hmm. uh, most economists spend their time playing with these mathematical models of maximization or various small iterations around there. You know, some of them now do game theory instead and applying or, as I've demonstrated, misapplying econometric techniques to data that's often of poor quality. They spend a lot more time worrying about the error term than they do about data. And again, this idea that the economy is a machine means the economy isn't social. Mm. I think that most people would be much more in agreement that we should pay people for looking into how societies organize the way that people provide for survival and flourishing. That's what we want from people who think about economies. Absolutely. How do we organize ourselves so that people can actually live and flourish? This is so important now. We are going through massive technological change in this decade. There's a lot of discussion now about how AI will displace lots of jobs. So this is a really important time to look at how people can survive and flourish using economics. Yeah, our abilities to innovate technically have gotten way ahead of our ethical and social sophistication. Mm -hmm. Back in the 1930s, economist John Maynard Keynes wrote an essay about what economies would be like for the grandchildren of that generation as more and more technology displaced work and people had more and more leisure time. Mm -hmm. This was the idea that with this free up of work time, we'd have more time to engage in arts and culture and family life and be nice. you know, <laughs> all the rest of this. And yet, if we don't update our social and ethical models, what happens is massive unemployment, right? You know, there should be ways of thinking through economics and technological change 
that would get us to that much better case scenario rather than the worst case scenario. Mm-hmm. However, economists, when the U.S. was undergoing its big deindustrialization, shoe and clothing and later on auto manufacturing all moving abroad, economists gave a little bit of notice to this, but basically said, oh, we can just put in some retraining programs and things will be fine. And Congress said, okay, here's some retraining programs and then we'll underfund them. And so you know, I really respect some of the work that economists put into what they call deaths of despair, that this deindustrialization was partly behind a lot of the opioid epidemic and everything else, people just despairing as mm-hmm. the industries that used to pay good wages disappeared and there, you know, there just wasn't much left. That and the 1% pulling away at the other end due to the right. factors I talked about earlier. We have not handled it well. And it seemed like economists weren't giving it much attention at the time. But there was a beginning of worrying more about this when online instruction, and particularly online instruction using recorded lectures, started getting more popular. All of a sudden, professors could be replaced. That strikes much closer to home for a lot of economists who have academic positions. And now as we go into AI as well, mm-hmm. a lot of technical kinds of jobs that in this case, often a lot of men have identified their self-worth with mm-hmm. may be going. So how is that going to be handled well? You can't really talk about that question within a mechanical model of maximize this and self-interest that. You have to talk about it in a context of real people, real choices, real power differences, real ethical considerations. We need more female economists and we need more enlightened male economists. Yeah, yeah. I think this is a project. I mean, some people think basically men have destroyed the world. They need to cede power to women who will come in and save it. And I think that is is far too essentialist and and categorical. What we really need is all hands on deck. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay. We need women who are caring to get the resources to do it better and to do it at a public and international scale. We need men who are caring, who probably already have more access to that kind of power to use it that way. We need people who are not caring (laughs) to get disempowered, right? Yeah. We need businesses that have a broader view and mm-hmm. nonprofits that have a broader view to take action on these issues. And we need those for-profit groups that are greedy. And I have to say, there are nonprofit groups that are also greedy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it doesn't yeah. matter what's on your corporate charter. What matters is what you do. We need right. them to be disempowered. And I think what's really important, and I hope this comes out right, is as more women enter the space women's point of view, perspectives, lived experience, which hasn't been given a lot of attention and is different to the accepted perception or view of the world. I think it's just being very conscious that it may seem out of place for the field of study in economics and women need to, and men who are enlightened, need to stand firm not to be pulled into that kind of status quo, that sort of traditional way of seeing the world and thinking about the world. It's, it's like you've got to be a step ahead in, in, in knowing, well, here's what the gender bias looks like. This is how it shows up. Your view is different. Stick to it because it will lead to a change. I think we have to be careful about not attributing the different sort of experiences women tend to have had mm-hmm. with sort of differences in a womanly nature. 
Hmm. That is, there are plenty of women who have achieved success by essentially modeling themselves on the dominant male roles. Whenever people say, well, you know, women are just nicer and more cooperative, I say, you know, Margaret Thatcher. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, it's not to say that men can't be that way. So, you know, women tend to be socialized and have more experiences pointing in one direction. So I think on average in behavior, it does show up that way. But the bigger problem is the culture of the boardroom, Mm -hmm. uh, the culture of the areas of power, where in order to prove that we're a macho group, we have to take lots of risks. Mm -hmm. And there it isn't so much women coming in, bringing even different points of views as just different bodies, (laughs) different voices at a different pitch, Mm -hmm. makes it harder to keep that sort of locker room macho atmosphere. Mm -hmm. It's been shown that when people work in groups with diverse viewpoints, a lot of groupthink just can't happen anymore. Yeah. The groupthink comes out of these, everybody sort of thinking the same way to begin with. You bring in women or other disadvantaged groups And somehow those things that just seemed like innocent jokes now look very sexist or racist, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And that atmosphere starts to break down. Yeah. Or it doesn't, and then people get sued for harassment Mm -hmm. or discrimination. Groupthink is just another way of saying we want to be comfortable. We want to be comfortable. We want to be bound people like us, do things that serve us. That's right. It feels good. There's no conflict. We don't have to deal with opposing views. I I was in an economics conference years ago. I was actually a a young mother at the time. But the foundation that was running it had had the wisdom to invite enough women. I was by far the most junior person at this thing, but they invited enough women and enough senior women in positions of responsibility to keep a lot of issues on the table that otherwise would have gone. So there were like three or four, maybe even five male past or future Nobel Prize winners at this conference of maybe 20, 25 people. But there's also a future female university chancellor and high powered person in the Department of Labor and you know some other folks there. And when something like childcare came on the table, it stayed on the table. And you could see some of the guys looking really confused at first, like, why are we talking about this? Mm. But between a crucial number of women and some, what you were calling enlightened men, they stayed on the table. And in fact, when later on it was mentioned ways of carrying this work forward, perhaps we could have a week-long summer institute. It was one of the young men who raised his hand and said, you know, that's really hard when you have a young family to leave them for a week. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) And what happens is that a lot of women, people sigh of relief when their worldview and experience can be considered, can be voiced. Yeah, when it actually can can come up and other people and, you know, even at least some other men don't just glaze over. Yeah. But they actually are forced to pay attention. (laughs) It's an acceptance. It's, I hear you. I understand. Or if you don't understand, I'm willing to listen and learn. Yeah. Yeah. I was at another economics conference somewhere around the same time where one of the male participants left the room whenever a woman was speaking. You just couldn't imagine (laughs) that she'd have anything worthwhile to say. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So there, I mean, these things (laughs) exist side by side. (laughs) That was an extreme case. Yeah. Yeah. We're sort of talking about how the economics community might need to change. And what are your thoughts, Julie? If you were to address the economics community right this minute and (laughs) say, look, we need to change. How do we do it? Here are some thoughts. What would you say? 
I mean, I've been addressing it for years, but mm -hmm. uh, the, the, I mean, we need to change the definition to that one mm -hmm. about survival of flourishing. We need to drop that mechanical metaphor and realize that the economy is social. We need to get all hands on deck in terms of intelligent people from any race, gender, whatever background. And we need to use all the tools, not limit ourselves to mathematics and econometrics, but also get out there and talk to people, gather whatever kind of data is helpful. I've talked about it as a broader questions and bigger toolbox approach. Right. The broader questions are things like people are still dying you know, from poverty. We're destroying the environment. Mm -hmm. Those questions, rather than, you know, where's the stock market going next week, are some of the big ones that economists should be addressing. And we need the bigger toolbox. Why should we denigrate perfectly good, perfectly rational, in a broader sense, ways of gaining knowledge, just because they're not theorem-proof kind of form? Mm -hmm. We need to be truly radical, not in the sense of left wing must have some kind of communal, cooperative, local or state run society, but radical in the sense of neither theories from the right nor the left have really taken into account the lived experience mm -hmm. of economic life and particularly the lived experience of women. And women and feminist economists have been doing a lot, playing a big role in trying to change economic theory in the field of economics. How can women be made to feel more welcome, do you think? Well, there has been a little bit of progress. The American Economic Association has had a committee on the status of women in the economics professions from the 1970s. Mm -hmm. It was founded by a number of feminist women, but since then has grown into a more narrowly focused professional advancement thing doesn't tend to question the theory or practice of economics, just the exclusion of women. Lately, I've seen it working mostly on projects, say, mentoring, how to mentor young women so they can be more successful. Hmm. I don't think mentoring is bad, but it's not particularly radical in the sense that I want. It tends to assume that the problem going on here is women that don't know what to do, rather than men who are sexist idiots, <laughs> who are actively <laughs> discriminating against women and that kind of thing. And so a lot of women economists are not what I would call feminist in the way they think. They have bought the economic form of analysis, the definition, hook, line, and sinker. They even publish some of these women are more risk averse than men stuff because yeah. they aren't using statistics any better than the men are. But there is some attention and levering out that central core power of the mechanical metaphor to cover over all the inconvenient truths we don't want to face is harder than letting in a few more women. And this exactly echoes what the narrative in the business world for a very, very long time, it was all about fixing women. What's wrong with women? Yes. Women aren't confident <laughs> enough. Yes, women yes. have high-pitched voices. Women yes. dress inappropriately. <laughs> women wear makeup. And now I think the narrative has definitely shifted the other way. And there is a recognition that actually this system has been designed by men for men there is a structural problem yes. which needs to be addressed. And so that's exactly your point, isn't it, Julie? Yes. We need to evolve in how we think about the world and the narrative, and we need more diverse views, perspectives, insights, and we need inclusion so people who are different can share in those views. We need to grow up. <laughs> 
true. We do. Yeah. We need to give up these these overly simple ideas that you know are fine for four year olds or eight year olds or something like that, mm-hmm. and realize the world is a much more complicated place and a, mm-hmm. a place in which we have responsibilities. Yeah. And so, do you think economists need to be more radical, Julie? Oh yes, <laughs> and radical not in terms of left wing, but radical in terms of going to. I mean, radical actually comes from the word for root. So we need to go to the root of what economic life is and how we study it. And it's really a social thing that needs to be studied with the broadest and most well-equipped intellectual toolbox we can find, along with ethical toolboxes and (laughs) everything else that we need to make good decisions. If you were to think about research that you would recommend for the up-and-coming cohort of women and enlightened men, in terms of what they should focus on, what would you say? What I've seen recently, say particularly in the Journal of Feminist Economics, which started out with more articles about methodology and theory in the field of economics, is more what we used to call add women and stir. (laughs) Mm. That is research that does bring women in as subjects or brings women in as researchers, but doesn't get into what I could think of as the more transformative questions. And again, that's not bad, but if we're not doing the more transformative things, we need to be doing that. And part of that, if you just kind of sit on the sidelines and yell that the emperor has no clothes, you don't get a whole lot of attention. If you can go in and point out that doing an empirical study, the emperor's getting frostbite on their toes, you know, something to point to that is actually proof that we are going wrong. This is where I feel like my research on this myth that women are more risk-averse than men. I'm not just taking pot shots from the outside. I've got a PhD in economics. I'm using the statistics right. Mm-hmm. And I'm showing that this whole literature is wrong. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of graduate students coming up. And they're not going to be able to do the kind of research that they want right away necessarily because they have to please a dissertation committee, right? And they might be able to start doing it as they get tenure. But I hope they don't lose sight of doing some really useful research as they gain more power and credibility. And a lot of that is about disabusing the notions that have gotten so ingrained and showing how different views can actually do better. Mm-hmm. I didn't just say that this literature on women and risk aversion was wrong. I said, look at the data and here is what really comes out from it. This is the right conclusion to draw from this data that people were looking at. Or you can show that, you know, a certain method works better. In my case, I was just showing that, you know, meta-analysis, a social critique of the supposed knowledge that comes out of individual studies is useful. But there are many ways of approaching that. And I hope that younger scholars would find those places where whatever field they're in, economics or business or some other social science or science, people are saying really stupid things because of their biases. (laughs) Can you... Show that convincingly, and can you show that there are better alternatives? Mm-hmm. You know, for people who are going for some kind of academic or research-oriented line, I think that's where some of the good stuff really is. And if you don't do that, we're going to be stuck for another hundred years. <laughs> <laughs> right. yeah. yeah. So the time is now. Yeah, Judy, this has been such a fascinating conversation and such an important one as well. And I feel like we need to send this around the economics departments and to some of the economists that maybe aren't radical or are just hanging on a little bit too tight to the rational thought and the economic man. Mm -hmm. 
If listeners want to find you, connect with you, how can they do that? Well, I retired from UMass, University of Massachusetts, Boston, and my email there still works. Uh, okay. Or if you Google my name, Julie Nelson, UMass, University okay. of Massachusetts, Boston, julie.nelson at umb.edu. Amazing. Julie, thank you so much for making the time to do this. Thank you for joining me today. If you would like to connect with me, you can find me online at Join the Purse. Or you can subscribe to our newsletter, jointhepurse.substack.com. Until next time, goodbye.